Welcome to another thrilling episode on Book TV. But before we dive in, let's talk about enhancing your reading experience with novel nutrition. As you lose yourself in today's story, imagine supporting your journey with our unique supplements, specially crafted for readers like you. Whether it's boosting focus with Epic, unwinding with Read, or energizing with Zip Strips, Novel Nutrition is here to complement each chapter of your literary adventure. Visit novelnutrition.co or click the link in the show notes, and don't forget to use code BOOKTV for an exclusive 20% discount. Now, let's immerse ourselves in the magic of today's story. Families First, Battlegrounds, a post-apocalyptic Next World book series, Volume 6, written by Lance K. Ewing, audiobook produced by Book TV. You support this author when you buy reading boosters from Novel Nutrition at novelnutrition.co. Now let's get to the story. Forward. Recap of Volumes 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. In Volumes 1, 2, and 3 of Families. First Tildy post-apocalyptic Next World series, we were introduced to a cast of characters spanning multiple locations across the United States, all with diverse points of view and hardships to overcome. We learned that North Korea dropped an EMP in the center of the United States, knocking out power to all states except Hawaii, as well as parts of Canada and Mexico. With no electricity, food or running water, and few working vehicles, the country is instantly reduced to the hardships of days long gone. It's every family for themselves in this new and hostile world. Lance and Joy, along with their children, like-minded friends and neighbors, embark on their journey, headed to Saddle Ranch in the Colorado Rocky Mountains by way of Raton Pass on the Colorado-New Mexico border. The first leg of the trek to Raton Pass would prove more difficult than they could ever imagine, plagued with injuries and losses along the way. Relying on faith and loyal to the group, they soldier on, and finally arrive at their destination. Vlad is transferred to a FEMA camp and eventually to Trinidad, Colorado, for surgery following a life-threatening injury. The sons of Lance and Joy each face hardships and potentially catastrophic situations. Former McKinney police officer Mike proves to be a hindrance to the group, as well as an invaluable help when safety is on the line. Lonnie and Jake keep everything running as smoothly as possible. Joy, Nancy, and Tina earn MVPs on the first leg of the trip. Mac, on Saddle Ranch, falls in love with a beautiful medical doctor, but the relationship is complicated from the very start. Crossover has begun between the communities of Saddle Ranch, led by John, and the West, led by Samuel. David and the Jenkins family in Raton, New Mexico, suffer a devastating loss after an accident involving mistaken identity. James and Janice in Weston, Colorado, start their new family, taking in a young orphaned boy named Billy. With both James and Jason in Newtown government posts, they try to remain neutral as the sheriff and judge passively battle for control of the town. It is clear to all that Rana is working with the U.S. military and always has been. Volume 3 finds our main group held up at Raton Pass longer than they had planned, but their assistance will prove invaluable to David Jenkins and the Raton Pass militia. The battle for control of the town of Weston, Colorado, heats up, with both the sheriff and judge 
vying for the allegiance of the town mayor, James Van Fleet. On Saddle Ranch in Loveland, Colorado, old foes unexpectedly turn into allies and the security detail is gutted and put back together, piece by piece, for the imminent battle for control of the pristine valley. The colonel takes a shine to Lance's group and forges a friendship with the always boisterous and joking Vlad that may prove life-saving for many others. As they learn new information about Rona's and Baker's intentions, they become more concerned with getting to Saddle Ranch in a timely manner. Volume 4 continues with James Van Fleet being shot and subsequently paralyzed from the waist down, but that won't keep him from his family or his town's responsibilities. The rivalry between Sheriff Johnson and Judge Lowry is heating up, and the only thing they agree on lately is that one of them has to go. With the death-defying show right around the corner, the sheriff becomes distracted, and even his girlfriend Kate thinks he is becoming increasingly irrational. Mac and Corey on Saddle Ranch have their hands full with Ralph once again, but they aim to make this the last run-in. They have bigger fish to fry and need the entire valley focused on the threat that is literally walking towards them. Lance and group are teaming up to help David and the Ratten Pass militia defend the mountain against only a small part of Baker's group. They are counting on the colonel's help if things go badly, but there are no guarantees in this next world. Either way, they have outstayed their welcome and are back on the road to Saddle Ranch. Every town and pit stop they go through is an opportunity to help those most in need, even when it puts the group at risk. Volume 5 is the last leg of Lance's journey home, where he and his group arrive on the outskirts of Saddle Ranch with only a few days rest before preparing for the battle of their lives. The last leg of his journey is plagued with hardships, an attack on the group's security detail and loyal companion Ringo, and negotiating numerous hostels on the way, all while making a few new friends. The town of Breckenridge, Colorado, brought an opportunity to negotiate the purchase of a massive piece of machinery, named BERT, that could be a game-changer in the Great Battle. David and the Ratten Pass militia are taking a much-needed break from fighting Baker's hostile forces, but that doesn't mean bad things can't happen. He and his son Mark fight for their very lives after an ambush, the likes of which they would never expect. The Warrior Games and Motorcycle Jump are underway, with a few surprises the town citizens didn't see coming. Sheriff Johnson has upped the ante on his feud with Judge Lowry, chasing him down and placing him under arrest as the jail's latest guest. Baker and his radical group continue to plan their attack on the valley, all while hosting not one, but two imposters who infiltrated his group. Rana and his supporters keep their distance from Baker but are never far away. Meanwhile, the colonel tells his friend and mentor, Samuel, the truth about what is to come, and Mike unknowingly starts an on-the-go job interview that could have massive implications down the road for the group and the country as a whole. Chapter 1. Loveland, Colorado I asked Lonnie to stop an eighth of a mile short of the turnoff to Saddle Ranch. I didn't want the first thing they saw being a caravan, and for sure not Bert. Everyone was on edge at the ranch, I was sure, but I didn't know if they knew what was coming. It wasn't my place to tell them, but a tank rolling in on a trailer with more than 20 new people was bound to cause confusion, at least if not a host of problems. 
We had a hard road getting here, and I wasn't interested in us being the next casualty of a lack of information, or anything else. Not a warm welcome. After all, we were more mouths to feed when broken down to basic elements of survival. I spoke with the head guard, who I didn't recognize, of course, and asked if he was working with John or Samuel and got what I thought was a good response. I'm with Saddle Ranch, he said. Have you heard of it? My name is Lance, my dad is Bill, and Sharon is my mother. I lived here nearly my entire childhood. Let me see your convoy, he said, and I walked fifty yards back, motioning for them to come close. Hold on, he commanded, ducking behind a few of his men, talking on a walkie-talkie. Here, was all he said a minute later, handing me the radio. Lance, you're here? I heard on the other end. Yes, Mom, it's the group I was telling you about and me. We made it. Oh, son, we knew you would get here eventually. I am so thankful. How are Joy and the boys? Damaged but healing and alive, I responded, not knowing what else to say. Dad and Carl? I asked. Good, honey. We are all great. Can we come up? I asked. Of course, but I'm getting one question from the council. Hold on just a minute. The radio crackled, and muffled voices could be heard in the background. I waited, trying not to stare at the guards, instead scanning the valley where I grew up and reliving short memories of days gone by. Lance, are you there? Welcome home, said Bill. Sure, Dad. I think Mom had a question from the council. They want to know why you have a tank, he replied. I figured that, and his name is Bert, just for the record. Bert is an equalizer, an attitude adjuster, they used to say. He cost us a pretty penny, and we only purchased him because of what we heard was coming here. Has that changed? No, it's the same. We got confirmation just yesterday on it. We are so happy that you made it here safely. Well, maybe we should come up, I said. You have ten guards down here giving me questioning looks. North Barricade, let them through the whole lot, Bill authorized. I handed the radio back to the guard and motioned Lonnie to pull up and through the barricade. Once everyone is through, wait for me before going up the road, I told him. Sure thing. I may just have you ride on the hood for protection, he joked. It's no joke, but a great idea. Hold on, I added, as I shimmied up the truck's front and onto the hood. Let's take it slow, though, I called out. I already have one bad leg. I'll trade you, called out Vlad. Your bad one for my missing one. I knew he was joking, but he put it into perspective, and I vowed to pray in thanks for what I did have, moving forward. I asked Lonnie to stop so I could bring Joy and our children up front. They hopped on the hood with ease, the kids, that is, and a few of the ladies helped push Joy up as I grabbed her arm for the last bit of the ride. Lately I had this recurring dream of arriving here with our whole family on the bow of a ship, it didn't make sense since we were landlocked, but now it sort of did. We were sailing a hostile no-man's land of an ocean, including forests, deserts, and plains, to arrive leading an impressive convoy of battle-hardened but God-fearing people who only wanted their children to grow up in peace and harmony, and would fight until their last breath to ensure it. A large group awaited us, and the children were getting a closer look at their new playmates. I was always in awe of how quickly children could make a friend with someone near their own age. They were just kids, playing games. You be nice to me, and I'll be nice to you style. 
Bill, Sharon, and John stood at the side of the main entrance to Saddle Ranch. Our boys waved and smiled. We all did, for we were embarking on a new adventure with only one thing certain. We were home with family and not leaving anytime soon. I greeted my family, David, and the council, and was told that Samuel, who I had only met two times before and briefly at that, would be up soon. My brother Carl was the man of the day, getting squeals out of our boys, each asking for an on-the-shoulder ride Uncle Carl was famous for. Minnie joined in, dancing around like a puppy will, with a tired but very much alive Ringo looking on from atop the trailer. I looked around at many familiar faces, some who had been there my entire childhood, and I truly felt we had made it. After 800 grueling miles, I was at home with my family in tow, and it felt good, better than good. But I was keenly aware that my old friends and fellow travelers I now called friends were not sure of their next steps. We were introduced to Mac and Corey, both of whom I hadn't met before, but I felt immediate respect. Let's meet tomorrow, said Mac. John has set aside enough apartments to accommodate you all, and I have to know the story behind that tank. I promised him we would meet for breakfast, and I would hand-select a small group of us to speak for the others. Our first evening would be hard to top, and I slept like a baby this night. Not like a one-month-old waking every hour, but like a six-month-old who has lucky parents and sleeps through the night. Waking twice in a panic that I missed my guard duty and finally realizing where I was, I vowed to volunteer for it first thing in the morning. The boys all slept in our room, scattered across a king-sized bed I hadn't slept in since leaving our home in McKinney. I must have ignored elbows and knees digging into my ribs like it was an everyday event. The sun rose early, and we gathered a small sample of our group to talk with Mac and Corey. Our little guys took off early to be with their grandparents and uncle. Choosing the usual crew of Lonnie, Jake, Joy, Vlad, and Nancy, I added Aiden, Shane, and Sheila to round out the group. We met at the pavilion for the first sit-down breakfast I or any of us had eaten since we started the trek west. How often do you sit for breakfast like this? I asked Mac. I figured maybe once a week. Every morning, he answered. All of us do, thanks to him, he added, introducing Rico to us all. I used to live here from age 3 to 18, I told him. Yes, I've heard that, answered Mac. Much has changed, and still, there are a great number of things that remain the same, I remarked. I know, Mac replied. I heard you caught a four-pounder out of the canal. It's kind of a legend around here for those who care about fishing. Really? I replied, laughing. How did you hear that? Stories, he replied. And did you hear I fell in and went through the siphon trying to pull in a true monster trout? No way, I exclaimed. Nobody has made it through alive. Are there really blades down underneath to cut the ice in winter? Oh, yeah, and there's a bunch of other debris I can't even talk about now, he replied. So, there are still fish in there, I stated as almost a question. Yes, a few for sure, Mac replied. Don't be a humble fisherman, interjected Rico. Mac just recently caught a seven-pounder on the siphon's back end. Wow, I exclaimed not questioning the size. Truth be honest, I couldn't wait to fish it again. We've been expecting you all, said Mac, but I'll leave that speech for our leader, John, who will speak with you in just a little while. 
I'm head of security here, and this is Corey, former chief of police for the city of Loveland. I'm not sure how much you know about what's headed our way, but seeing as you brought a friggin' tank with you, I'm guessing you have some idea. We met with the colonel, who says he knows you and considers you, Vlad, a personal friend. I'm sure he filled you in somewhat on the man called Baker. We know of him, Vlad responded, and sent a spy maybe a week ago to infiltrate his group. Wait, I interjected. You knew about that, Vlad? Uh, of course I know everything that happens in our group. I only didn't tell you in case the colonel would be upset about it, I conceded. No worries, my friend. And it's fine. I would have done the same, but now we all know, and I'll deal with my friend, the colonel, if need be. Did your friend who infiltrated Baker's group make it? asked Corey. I don't know. He is supposed to meet us here on the next full moon, I replied. He has helped us all along the way to get here, and I hope he shows. I hear you have firepower, said Mac in more of a statement than a question. We do, chimed in Lonnie. But we need to know where we stand here before discussing it further. No disrespect. Not at all, said Mac. I would play the same card in your shoes. John and Bill will be speaking with you soon about your position here and the particulars of ranch life, I'm sure. It's not too bad. In fact, it's pretty good so far. Better than a FEMA camp, I'm sure. I can already tell you. You're right about that, said Vlad emphatically. They did save my life, but I'm glad I didn't have to stay. It's just a matter of sliding into your role here and respecting your fellow men and women sharing the valley with you, Mac continued. And the kids? asked Jake. The children don't have roles yet, replied Mac, although they will eventually. Right now, they are meant to play and be kids, without a care in the world, until the lunch or dinner bell rings. We will set up a school once this baker business is behind us. Your tank there? What is it exactly? Bert, I replied. We bought him up in Breckenridge, and he is a 1942 T-34 Russian from World War II. He runs, fires, and has a half tank of gas after running him over the Continental Divide. You thought we needed a tank, huh? asked Corey. Unless you guys just had one lying around. Nope. As I say, we bought it. And yeah, I think we need it, I replied. In fact, we paid a pretty penny for him, and I expect it to be a game changer when it counts. We fought them once, Baker's group, but only a small band. They are tough and don't play by any standard rules of warfare. They even sent a young girl out on the front lines right before battle. I wish we could have afforded to buy the other tank as well. Did you run out of money? asked Mac. No, we just didn't want to trade all of our weapons for it. What weapons do you have? asked Corey in a semi-repeat of Mac's previous question. I think we should wait for our meeting with John and Bill before getting into all of that, I suggested. Fair enough, replied Mac. They should be by momentarily. John and Bill did show up momentarily, only ten minutes later, with Samuel in tow. Gentlemen and ladies, said John, introducing Bill, Samuel, and himself. Reaching out to shake everyone's hand, he continued. We are glad you are here and eagerly anticipated your arrival. Lance, I will tell you up front that the information you gave your parents at the first sign of trouble has greatly improved our chances of survival as a group and an entire valley. Putting a hand on Samuel's shoulder. We operate in separate groups, but also as a whole, to ensure safety for the valley. 
working closely with Samuel and his West residents. We do have some crossover with our groups, but it is minimal at this juncture. Besides the barricade guards, of course, who are switched out regularly. We are all responsible for this four miles of valley, pristine and untouched thus far by those willing to do us harm. We have had our share of small skirmishes and people to deal with, but it pales in comparison to what's headed our way. You know the colonel better than I do. And Samuel here, along with his daughter Sarah, know him even better. We are trusting that he and his crew will be our lifeline if it comes down to defending our valley from would-be occupiers. After only befriending Vlad for less than a month, he came to our rescue, so I'm sure he will pull out all the stops for his mentor, Samuel, I replied. I hope you're right, but we have to prepare as if he can't. All in Samuel's group do not carry guns or weapons of any kind. As I'm sure you are aware, on our side we do. The security force is a blend of both and has seemed to work well so far. Everyone here has a full-time job, and we strive to put people in occupations where they may have experience already, or possibly they just want to try and are willing to put in the time needed to learn the position. The only ones not working are our elders. Do you have any of those with you, Lance? Just Lonnie here, I joked, getting a few smiles from my side, and payback is a... from Lonnie. We do have a fair number of kids, though. Nine, to be exact. The children here will have chores and schooling soon, but right now we let them play. Supervised, of course. I understand, I told him. Two of mine were abducted on our way here while playing unsupervised. Thankfully, we got them back unharmed. Same with us, interjected Samuel. Happened to one of our young boys. The second time never turns out as good, said Bill. You've met our head of security, Mac, and his right arm, Corey. They've put together a security team that is top-notch from what I've seen. There's always room for more if it's the right fit. Your jobs for the next two weeks will be the same as most, preparing for the great battle. Vlad, I hear you and Sheila are good under the hood. Yes, Bill, that is correct, replied Sheila, and it looks like you have quite a few vehicles around here to keep running. That we do and it helps both communities to manage a property this size and continue to feed everyone. Here, the vehicles are among the highest of priorities, so I would ask that you two start in the shop tomorrow. What about daycare? asked Sheila. I hadn't thought about it, but now I thought it was a good question. Most parents drop off the children. The boys will be in one area and the girls in another. We call it boys' pattern and girls' pattern, replied John. They will do activities together and in their separate groups. Why split them up at all? Sheila asked. That is a fair question, said John. We don't watch all that much TV around here, and even less now, he added with a laugh. So all the boys want to do is run around and wrestle, and the girls don't. Both groups seem to like it that way. But yes, to answer your question, Sheila, we have daycare from breakfast until dinner every day. Speaking of meals... They are communal and eaten in our pavilion, and sometimes outdoors on the patio. Rico is our head chef, and his team always has something for everyone. Mealtimes are posted on the front door of the dining hall. I trust you have all settled into your apartments. Yes, sir, I replied. There's room for all of us, and thank you. It's been a while since we slept in real beds. I forgot how nice that is.
It doesn't take long being away to have a new appreciation for beds, showers, and flushing toilets, added Bill. We all laughed as the initial apprehension in my group of how everything would work came down just a bit. Not a lot, but enough to start. Okay, said John. Let's give you all a day to get your bearings. I have arranged a tour of the property starting from the pavilion every two hours from noon to 6 p.m. Please let everyone know and bring the kiddos with you so they know where basic buildings and boundaries are located around here. Lance, Vlad, Jake, and Lonnie, can we borrow you for a couple of hours to talk strategy? You were all on the front line, correct? Yes, sir. That is correct. And we would be happy to share what we have learned about them so far, I responded for us all. Jake, Lonnie, Vlad, and I left word to tell our other halves we would be a little late this morning. You call her your other half? I asked Vlad. You mean Anna? Of course, I replied. Then yes, I do, he said with a smile and a don't-ask-me-any-more-questions look. Mac got out the easel marker board and quickly drew the boundaries and landmarks, similar to what he had done for the council only days ago. Each point of interest was circled, including nearly the entire top of the rimrock, I noticed, but only a tiny part of Green Mountain. You think they are coming over the rimrock, don't you? I asked. What makes you say that? said Mac. I grew up here and spent an equal amount of time on both Green Mountain and the Rimrock. I know every inch of both, and I would bet it hasn't changed a bit in thirty years. I see you only marked the lowest parts of Green Mountain but circled the Rimrock almost entirely. We have a working theory that they may come over the Rimrock in a wide band, like locusts to a farmer's field, Mac replied. I could see that, I guess. Where's your theory from? Well, I mean, originally. Mabel, said Bill. You remember her? Of course, Dad. She has pictures of our kids on her refrigerator, and we visit her every time we're here. How is she? Well, she passed recently, and the last thing she told your mother right before she died was that she had visions of them coming over the rimrock, like locusts, the last words she spoke when Sharon asked her how to defend a group that size was burn it. Those were her last two words before leaving this earth. Not the property, of course, I replied, but the rimrock scrub brush and some small trees. Enough to get hot, but not too high on the fire hazard list. The timing is absolutely the key. Is that what you're thinking she meant? Yes, that's the same thing Max suggested to us just yesterday, said John. If Mabel said it, then I believe it, I responded. I've never met a more hilariously stubborn woman with a huge heart and a closeness to God that I've never before seen. Lonnie felt more comfortable now, as did Jake and even Vlad. We laid our gun and ammo cards on the table, and Mac did the same. I'm not sure how all of this works now, said Mac. The weapons we have were donated to the group, although some residents still have their own. We didn't take them from anybody before you ask. But unless John or the council has a better idea, I say you keep yours now. And if we run low, you could lend some out, just until we get past this test headed here. I think we can agree on that. Right, guys? I asked. No point in having a weapon not used if someone needs one. Chapter 2 Loveland, Colorado Mac showed the plans they had to dig trenches where possible, 
and a fire break along the entire front of the rimrock. Our fields are full of wheat, and we can't bring in the harvest for at least another month, said Mac. We mill our own for flour, ending up as breads, pasta, desserts, and more. I'm not interested in burning our own crop. It's also a dry fuel source between the rimrock and our homes here. So we need a firewall three times as wide as the forest fires have, and we will dump as much water on the fields as we can get. As I can personally attest to, the canal is still running high, so I'm not concerned about wasting water yet. Then comes the hard part. A controlled burn started precisely when needed, and praying there is no wind blowing west. Without the colonel and his soldiers, it would likely be only a temporary distraction for Baker, but if we couple it with their help, it could be enough for a sizable victory, protecting this valley at least for a while. When do we get started? I asked. First thing after breakfast tomorrow, Mac replied. Your families will have a tour of the property today, the basics, really, what everyone should know. Vlad, if you and Sheila could introduce yourselves in the auto shop tomorrow after breakfast, I know they could use the help. If they give you any pushback, tell them both John and I told you to help out. I know you're both the real deal. You got a caravan of people in all kinds of vehicles here from hundreds of miles away. 800 miles, noted Vlad. Exactly, 800 miles. And I'm sure you had your share of maintenance issues, yet here you are. I have a special project for you two if you're up to it, offered Mac. Special project? What's that? asked Sheila. Our fire truck, Betty, we call her. She's old but steady and reliable. Until recently, that is. I would feel a whole lot better if she were running well before we set anything on fire. That's funny, I said without thinking, getting looks from almost everyone. Just Bert and Betty, I continued. A tank and a fire truck. Sounds like a classic movie of opposites attracting and living happily ever after. I can see the headline now. Bert is a tough and solid man from Russia's wilds, raised hard and fast. Betty is a sweet old gal who loves to bake pies and put out small fires. Together, they will stop at nothing to take on a ruthless enemy whose only mission is to take their valley. Sorry, everyone, I said. It doesn't sound near as funny as it did in my head. Never mind. It is kind of funny, said Corey. Lonnie weighed in with, It's good to see you brought your smart-assness halfway across the country with you, Lance. Payback, I said, laughing. Back to the tours said Mac, shaking his head back and forth, but smiling just a bit. Take the ones with your families this afternoon, and tomorrow morning we will give you two security tours. Those will be on four-wheelers, which I see you have, and we will ride the perimeter, meet all of the guards on duty, and get your take on our defense plans already underway, he added, pointing outside to a truck passing by with three old cars on a trailer. What are they up to? asked Jake. Fortifying the barricades said Mac. They may come over the rim rock, probably will, but we can't have them busting through the barricades and bringing trucks or heavy artillery right up our paved road from either direction. Makes sense, I said. They will come, but we can pick their path if we're lucky. Exactly, replied Mac. I'm glad we're all on the same page here. That afternoon, Joy and I picked the first tour, hoping to get some rest in the afternoon and visit with my parents and brother, knowing it would be a long time before we had another afternoon off. Most main areas and structures looked nearly the same as when I was a kid, with a facelift here and there. I remembered something my grandfather would say. Probably they all said it. They just don't make things like they used to. 
I vowed to show my boys the campsite I made up on Green Mountain more than 30 years ago, with a rock fireplace I built with my own hands that had taken 30 harsh winters and still looked like it was built yesterday. Everything here was like that. Every building, from the pavilion to the chapel to the homes. It's why this valley hadn't seemed to change for decades, always maintaining its rugged beauty. It was a good place to call home growing up, and it was a good place now to raise our children. I wondered about the rest of our family as we walked the property. What of my father and siblings in Louisiana, or Joy's mom on her ranch? The families of everyone traveling with us. What of them? Would they survive? Have they done so? I snapped back into focus with the canal being the last stop, warning the kids to stay far away. A man not long ago fell in on the front side of the canal siphon, said the guide dramatically, and got sucked underground only to barely survive and be hospitalized for more than a day. I knew the man, and he looked fine to me today, although he was the only one I ever heard of to come out the other side alive. But the boys were scared to death of it, and it was one less thing I hoped not to worry about. We didn't eat dinner in the pavilion this night. Like most of us weary travelers, Joy, the boys, and I stayed in, heating up a can of this or that and taking turns with the stoves. I was asleep by 9 p.m., a rarity back in the day, unless reserved for sick days or an early bedtime following a romantic dinner with my wife. The sunrise woke me early, but feeling refreshed and as close to 100% as you can get, not having bathed for several days. Thanks to Max generator magic, I did get my first almost hot shower since I could remember. I awoke on the first real day of our new life. The first day at a new job, the first day back at school, or joining a sports team. It was all the same, but this time, the prize for doing a good job wasn't my own parking spot, a Christmas bonus, or an A on my report card. It was a life, mine and everyone else's. Those I called family, those I cared about, and those residing in this valley that I had not yet met. This job was to be the hardest and most rewarding, next to being a father, that I've ever known. I couldn't wait to get started. You eat like this every morning? I asked again after yesterday's breakfast. Yep, eggs over easy, a biscuit, ham or bacon, and oatmeal, replied Mac. I'm pretty sure I'm never missing breakfast, I announced. We can always use another chef in training, called Rico, overhearing the conversation from across the room. I'll check with our group. There may be some interest. I'll bet my wife Joy would love to learn how you feed all these people every day. We have systems. That is the secret, said Rico. How do you do it? I asked, genuinely interested. I mean, I've heard of you from before. You were a big deal in food, I remember. Well, thank you, Rico replied, pulling up a chair. Chefs are like musicians, I think. They all make music, but the specifics are different. What does that mean? asked Lonnie, joining the conversation. The words, they are different. So are the instruments, the rhythm, the tone, vocals, and presentation. But at the end of the day, they all make music. Everyone assumes I would go into a kitchen like Dirty Harry, just shooting a meal together with a random pinch of this and a dollop of that, and I know many chefs who can do it masterfully. I am not one of those, but was blessed with a photographic mind. It helps in school. Kind of cheating, really, when you can literally see in your mind's eye what you already read. But for my work, it makes all the difference. 
I simply see a recipe for, let's say, linguine bolognese or spaghetti with meat sauce. I make it exactly as written, and I tweak the recipe each time, always marking the exact changes. After a few experiments, I have the perfect recipe that could win a contest most anywhere in the world. Then what? I asked, surprisingly interested now, having never thought of cooking that way. That's the easy part, he continued. Then I go into the next recipe, and the one after that. Unless some scientist discovers a new ingredient or spice, there is no need to change the recipe once perfected. I repeated this for ten years in dive kitchens, and finally in high-end restaurants, before becoming an overnight sensation. Isn't that how fast food burger joints do it? asked Lonnie. The same concept, yes, but on a whole other level. Chefs in training, he called out. We have a challenge for tonight's supper. We will make our best hamburgers, myself included, and see if we may rival the fast food joints, as they say. The winner picks a bottle of wine from my private collection. Any bottle? asked one of the chefs. Any bottle you wish. Excitement wafted through the kitchen like wildfire, making Rico wonder why he didn't have a contest every day. Because it wouldn't be special, he heard in his head, reminding him of a post-apocalyptic movie where the young girl's parents let her release a giant bubble, and I mean the size of four basketballs touching, off the family's front deck. She asked why she could only do one a day, and they replied that it wouldn't be special anymore if she did more. Enjoy your day, and don't forget, lunch is at noon, Rico added. He's a good guy, said Mac, and it never hurts to be in good with the head chef. Let's get going, he added. We will run the entire perimeter of the property twice. The first time, just observe and let's keep moving. In the second round, I'm looking for feedback. I want to know what's good, what's not, and how to fix it. Let's find any chinks in the armor today so we can get them fixed tomorrow. We headed out for the grand tour. I had walked the property many times over as a kid and teenager, although never in one shot. My dirt bike had done it more than once, but I was looking for jumps and bumps back then and not security breaches. Either way, it was good to be out riding and feel safe while doing so. Every tree, bush, and open field brought back a specific memory of my childhood and a friend I would never see again in this lifetime. Mac and Corey pointed out specific areas needing attention, or at least discussion on our second loop around. I made a mental note to add a few areas I thought could be vulnerable to an advancing army. Each place identified was marked clearly with orange construction tape and numbered 1 through 14. Once we returned to the shop, Mac put each location on the valley map with the corresponding number. Whitney offered to use her experience in art to draw the valley in detail and make a legend for each location, so anyone at all familiar with the property could head towards a spot needing repair at a moment's notice. The council offered to pay her, but she refused, citing helping her grandparents get their home back was more than she could ever repay. She worked long hours on the drawing and met with Mac and Corey to make sure everything was included and to scale. Chapter 3. Lake Trinidad, Colorado Sheriff Johnson left out early with his girlfriend Kate, pulling the borrowed Airstream trailer behind his truck. Well, she asked as soon as they had pulled out of town. Well, what? he replied. I just want you to say I was right about getting away for a few days. It's nice, right? 
I guess, and thank you before you ask me. What's going on with you? You've been kind of a jerk lately, she replied. I have a lot on my mind is all. Maybe we'll catch up to Judge Lowry walking down the road and run him straight over with the truck and trailer. Then maybe I would feel better. Who cares about him anymore? It was him or you, and one of you had to go. All I want you to do is think about me and fishing for the next three days. Can you do that? asked Kate. I'll try, he replied. Judge Lowry woke up early, packing his fly-fishing pole and waders for the half-mile walk down to the lake. He wished he had bought a property on the Trinidad side instead of the Weston side. Even twenty miles out from the courthouse, he still felt too close. Staying towards the side of the road, he was not worried about other people milling around but more concerned with running into a Westerner, as the citizens were called by out-of-town folk. Technically, he was still just inside the border he himself declared as part of the town he ran single-handedly for all those years. He stopped often, scanning in all directions, looking for a familiar face to hide from. After all, if he was discovered this close to town, he would hang for sure. This side of the lake wasn't too busy. Some people camped on the lake's rocky shore, and only a few of those were trying to fish. Amateurs, he said aloud, watching a few spend more time trying to untangle their line than actually fish. Judge Lowry didn't care that they were fishing to feed their families. He had a cabin fully stocked with his favorite food, and fish was not included. Any luck? he called out, wading past two men with their children looking hopeful for something to eat today. Nope, one called back. I'm starting to think there aren't any fish in this whole lake. Judge Lowry continued wading out, not responding and blocking out the children's cries of hunger. It's getting to be so a man can't even fish without being bothered anymore, he thought. Trying out a new fly that everyone had been talking about before the day, the answer would soon be clear. He had to go up to Pueblo a couple of months back and wait in line at the sportsman's warehouse for a mandatory four flies per person buying frenzy. Going once in the morning and again that afternoon after changing clothes, including a baseball cap, the judge grabbed eight flies in all. His third cast got a strike. Fish on, he said aloud, as he always did. He smiled, thinking he may just forget about getting revenge on the sheriff and settle into a fishing retirement. The judge fished alone, always had, and abhorred anything above complete silence on the water. Daddy, we're hungry, he heard behind him. Daddy, daddy, catch a fish, they continued. Catch a fish, they chanted. Catch a fish, catch a fish. The judge was seething but wouldn't turn around. Those brats are exactly why I never had kids, he thought. He concentrated on his trout. Not bad sized, he said, holding the nearly two-pounder out of the water for all to see before tossing it back into the lake. A smile crossed his thin lips, getting screams out of the kids on shore. Daddy, Daddy, that man just threw the fish back in. I don't eat fish, he called out without turning around. Sir, please, if you catch another, can we have it? asked one of the dads respectfully. There are plenty of fish in this lake, the judge replied. You will just have to try harder. Fish on, he called out only minutes later, laughing almost uncontrollably as he took a three-pounder off the line, tossing it back, the same as before. 
The men glared at him without saying a word as he waded back towards shore with the pistol clearly visible in his waistband. I'll leave the rest for you, at least for this morning. My reeling arm is getting a bit tired, he said with a smirk. He looked back to see both men wading into his same spot in the lake. It's not where you fish here, boys. It's what you have for bait, he called out. You're mean, screamed a little girl. You have no idea, Missy. I'll be back after lunch. I'm starved, the judge called out. There was a certain expectation in town that one might call acting as a particular personality, which was not quite his real self. The judge enjoyed the few times he could be a complete jerk and not have to answer for it later. Of course, he would trade it in a second to have his old job back. I'll be back, Sheriff. Maybe not tomorrow, next month, or even next year. But I will be back for my town, he shouted to no one. Halfway back to his cabin, he ducked into the trees after seeing a truck and silver trailer come around the bend. Road visibility was almost a mile here, and he scrambled for his binoculars to verify what he thought he saw. There's no way on earth, he mumbled, waiting for the vehicle to come clear of the trees. Following a moving vehicle was harder than he thought, catching only glimpses of a fender, trailer tire, and hitch. Leading the truck, his quick glimpse of the driver's side door confirmed his suspicions. Re-elect Sheriff Johnson, it said on the door, now heading straight for him a half mile away. Judge Lowry scrambled into the bushes, covering himself with a fallen branch, and heard Charlie Daniels out the open windows. He wasn't much of a country fan, but knew this particular song well. He sang the tune, forgetting some of the words and belting the parts he did know, like that somehow made him a true fan. He never liked the part about the weak judge letting the drug dealer go so just skipped it. The judge saw his old friend, clear as a summer day, as he passed. Time for a showdown, cowboy, he said aloud. He looked into the moving house with mixed emotions. I'll leave it to fate, he said aloud. Go on around the lake and we part ways here. Stop on my side and we'll dance. It sounded tough, hearing it out of his own mouth, though he knew he would never fight the sheriff man to man. He put his right hand on the butt of his pistol as the sheriff and his girl pulled over 30 yards from where he fished and secured the trailer with blocks. You always were dumber than you looked, Judge Lowry said, ducking back off the road when a little girl talking to Sheriff Johnson pointed up the road towards him. How nice of you to be so generous, he said, watching Kate hand the girl something that looked like food. Kick an old friend out of town and feed a perfect stranger. I see. I'll let him get comfortable, he thought. Back in his cabin, the seething judge stomped around, growing angrier by the second. You're going to kick me out of my town? He screamed. My town. You were nothing when I found you. You couldn't win an election without my help the first time, and I carried you all the way this time. Now you come out to fish my lake. Tell you what, you ungrateful imbecile. I have an idea. You stay here and I'll run Weston. How about that? Hey, keep it down over there, came the voice of a longtime cabin neighbor he had never even said hello to before. He loaded his pistol with shaking hands, put on a baseball cap and sunglasses, and headed down the road. He briefly thought about shooting his loudmouthed neighbor, but dismissed it as distracting to his real purpose today. In hindsight, he would have changed his red shirt from this morning for something more subtle that a little girl might not recognize.
Returning the half mile back to the lake took longer than before, staying completely off the road and in the tree line. The airstream completely blocked his view of the men and children he had seen fishing before, and he couldn't be sure if they had moved on. Once close, maybe 50 yards, he thought, to the lake's edge, he got back onto the road, pretending to be out for an afternoon stroll. His hand lay on the butt of his pistol, resting his finger on the trigger. How many videos had he seen of so-called experienced guys shooting themselves accidentally? He had even had a few in his court years ago. He opted to keep his hand off of the revolver until the last second. After all, having already taken a practice shot towards the sheriff back in Weston, he was kicking himself now for lack of follow-through. This time, I'll unload the whole spinny thing, whatever it's called, into him. And she, that no-good Kate, better not get in my way, he whispered. Approaching the trailer, still twenty yards out, Voices could be heard talking, but he couldn't make out the words. His hands were sweaty, and his breathing intensified, hearing it in his head. Whoosh! Whoosh! The thump of his heartbeat seemed all around him, like the start of a bass guitar at a rock concert. Boom! 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 rang in his head as he approached the side of the trailer. That's him! screamed the little girl. The man in the red shirt! she cried. Judge Lowry still couldn't see anything and ducked under the trailer, only seeing jean-covered legs, some big and others small. He worked his pistol out of his pants waist, fumbling and dropping it onto the dusty ground. His hands were sweaty and felt like they were covered in dish liquid. Feet shuffled and voices called out to each other, with his old friend telling everyone to stand back. This is it, the judge thought. The showdown that never happened. Little legs disappeared from the under-trailer view, but not his. Cowboy boots, the same pair he had worn since the judge could remember. He flashed back to a movie or a book, maybe where the shooter was under an 18-wheel trailer and shot the leg of his opponent, dropping him and allowing for the final kill shot. It seemed like a long shot, but the only one left. Aiming for the right boot midway down, he held his breath and pulled the trigger for the first time in earnest. Boom! Echoed under the truck, much louder than he suspected. His ears rang, and the boots didn't move. He fired again, hitting the left boot while aiming once again for the right. What the— He said aloud, his ears ringing as he watched the boot fall over. Empty. He breathed heavily and panicked, not knowing what to do, having more rounds but not remembering how many. Frantically, he looked up and down the underside of the trailer for a way out. Shadows crisscrossed the ground on one side, moving the judge towards the other. Nice try, judge, came the booming voice he had known for years and even had nightmares about. You should have stayed away. I was going to let you tuck tail and run back to Pennsylvania, but then that little girl told me a story of a man who caught fish and threw them back into the lake while the children starved. I knew only a bastard like you would let that happen. So come on out and let's finish this like men. Judge Lowry panicked, sweating, and dropped the pistol again. Don't shoot, he cried. I'm coming out. Throw the gun out on the ground, came the command from the sheriff. The judge could see himself shot down right here, or hanging from a noose in Weston after next Saturday's festivities, in front of the entire town that used to fear and respect him. 
Neither scenario allowed him to go home. I'm stuck, he said, shuffling around and buying time to think. He could now see two sets of legs from under the trailer, one set larger than the other. You have five seconds to come out, Judge. One, two, three. He fired at the legs he thought to belong to his old friend and new foe. Crack, 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 as he fired wildly but in slow motion, thinking he may blow his eardrums. He fired until he heard the click and then pulled the trigger twice more. He couldn't hear anything, like after the only concert he had ever been to. Cher rocked the house as far as he was concerned, but he wouldn't be able to hear properly for two days after. There was silence, followed by Sheriff Johnson dropping straight face first to the ground, like a boxer being knocked out on his feet. His head, turned towards the judge, told the story. Blood on his face ran bright red, and he didn't make a sound. How did I do that? thought Judge Lowry. I think I've killed him, he said aloud, not knowing what to do next. Staring at the open eyes of the lifeless man, Judge Lowry half expected him to jump up, say, Boo! or something else, to show it was a trick. Come on out, Judge. I have a question for you, came the familiar voice of a female. He slid out slowly, shielding his eyes, looking towards the sun. Rising cautiously, his empty pistol pointed towards the ground. Go ahead and drop that, Judge. It's empty anyway, said Kate, pointing hers at his chest. So, let me get this straight, he replied, getting some confidence back and hoping to make a deal. I killed your boyfriend and you're going to kill me? He was my fiancé, she replied. And do you really think you shot him in the head from under the trailer? He paused not quite computing. It was, after all, the first time he had ever fired a gun. So if I didn't shoot him, then... You getting warmer, Judge. Now for my question, how would you feel about a female sheriff? I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure it would be the best. Let me rephrase that, Kate said. How would you feel about not dying today? getting a ride back to Weston, resuming your old post in the courthouse, and getting me elected sheriff. <laughs> when you put it like that, it makes more sense for sure, he replied. But why? Everyone knew you were already calling the shots behind the scenes. Why not just stay in your lane? I mean, you were engaged, right? I was, but to the wrong man. Besides, why call the shots, as you say, from behind the scenes when I can do it from inside my jailhouse? I was planning on doing it anyway, but was going to let him get some fishing in first. Kind of like giving a terminal dog a steak before bringing him to the vet to be put down. You, however, provided me the perfect distraction. So here we are, she added, pulling out everything of value or that could identify the sheriff, including his weapon, belt, and badge from the body. But you never liked me, replied the judge. You said this town didn't need a judge. Not exactly. I don't care about you one way or another. But a town needs both a sheriff and a judge. Everybody knows that. Where's your stuff? In the bushes up the road, if it's still there, that is. Where's the rest? That's it, he said. It's all I own now. But what if I wasn't here and we never saw each other again? Where else would you be besides in your cabin up here, she said. I figured we would run into you sooner or later, and sooner it was. How would you know about the cabin? 
I've never told anyone. Your secretary, the one who wrote all of the checks for your bills for years, including a mortgage payment on the cabin you just told me you didn't have. Now turn around and put your hands behind your back. Wait, I thought we... She pointed to the families staring coldly at the scene in front of them. Is this the man? She asked them. Yes, ma'am, said the little girl. He's the one who wouldn't give us any fish. He shot this man, and I'll make sure he's punished for it, said Kate, wondering if they saw more than that. She opened the back door of the truck and helped Judge Lowry get inside. Ma'am, asked one of the fathers, what about the body? Leave it, she said as she drove away. Let's pick up your stuff, Judge, all of it, Kate said, driving back up the road. When do I get these cuffs off, he asked. When we get to your place, and not a second before. Imagine how happy the townsfolk will be when you and I host a meal for everyone with all the provisions I'm sure you have in there. Take a right on the second dirt road coming up. Then it's the third cabin on the left. There's a turnaround just beyond it for the trailer. And just so we're on the same page, who was the right guy? Not you, she replied, stopping right in front of his soon-to-be-empty cabin. I'll keep your pistol, and you can ride up front, she told him, taking his handcuffs off and helping him empty his cabin of anything valuable, now belonging to her citizens. Go on! Get out of here, loudmouth! called out his neighbor next door. You will be doing me a big favor, Kate, if you put two bullets into his house before we leave. Stick to the plan, she said, acting put out. But if it were her the neighbor was talking to, she would have emptied an entire magazine in his general direction. We'll need one story, simple and believable, and an election in the next week, Kate told the judge. And one more thing, don't ever lie to me again. Chapter 4. Weston, Colorado Kate pulled straight up to the jailhouse, with three deputies coming out to greet them. One look into the open driver's side window had them confused and reaching for their weapons. Easy, boys, said Kate, telling the judge to stay in the truck. There was a terrible accident, she said, forcing tears down her cheeks but maintaining the confidence and composure she would need moving forward. The sheriff was fishing when it happened. He took that inflatable tube he always used and went out in the middle of the lake. I was watching him with my binoculars, and he just disappeared. The whole tube. The judge and I both saw it. She paused, thinking the whole thing sounded like a badly thought-out made-up story that was out now, for better or worse. We were told by Sheriff Johnson to shoot on sight if we saw Judge Lowry in town again said the lead deputy. I know he said that. We all met this morning, the three of us. It's why he and I went out to the lake in the first place, to meet with the judge and see if we could fix the problem and balance this town out again. It was better before all this mess, the deputy agreed. But where's his body? Drowned. He went under and never came back up, she said with conviction, like a true widow. So... Unless you feel like diving Lake Trinidad, he'll be buried underwater. What about the post? The sheriff position, I mean. And our jobs. We've got a few prisoners here since you left town. Is the judge going to fire us for bringing him in the other day? Hold the prisoners until I get the whole story and tell your families not to worry. I'll see to it you all keep your jobs, she said, 
almost smiling, as the three deputies looked relieved and apparently bought her story hook, line and sinker. By the way, we will be having an election within the next week for sheriff. I'm expecting your votes, she said like a boss, walking out the door. Let's get you over to the courthouse, she said to Judge Lowry. Did they buy the story? he asked. Not sure they would. Like a house on fire, she said, smiling for the first time today. What about James? asked the judge. It doesn't matter. After the election, he works for me, she said. And me? he asked. We work together, you and I. But always remember that I like the sheriff more than I like you. Put me on the ballot and find some loser to make it look legit and stop telling your secretary everything. You know she's just going to tell me. We will feed the town lunch on the square in two days, and I'll bring your most generous provisions. Let's get the word out and announce the upcoming election. Any questions? When do I go back to work? Why, tomorrow, sir. I hear we have a few prisoners in the jailhouse as we speak. Let's meet there at, say, 8 a.m., like old times. Almost, he replied, digging in his pocket for the courthouse keys he swore he would never use again. James got the call on the radio from his deputy friend just before supper. They both are meeting with all the deputies tomorrow morning at 8 a.m., he told James. Well, I wasn't expecting that, James replied, with Jason overhearing the conversation. Thanks for the heads up. We will be there also, but I won't tell them how we knew about it, James added, calming his old friend's fears of snitching on his new boss or bosses. He radioed David with the news, not wanting him to hear it first at Mark's follow-up appointment. I don't think it will change anything with regard to the town expansion, James told him, adding, only who is running the circus. James and Jason waited until after dinner to discuss the news with their wives. Both Janice and Lauren admitted it was shocking news, with a litany of unanswered questions. Where's the body? Are you even sure he's dead? asked Janice. How did Kate just happen to run into the judge? asked Lauren before James could answer Janice. I thought they didn't like each other. I hear he's in the lake, drowned. No body was recovered, and I don't know how the judge fits into it all. Or Kate, for that matter, said James, answering all questions with one statement. Jason and I will go to the meeting tomorrow, and maybe take a drive down to the lake after, and see if we can find any clues to what happened. It's a long shot, I know, but it's worth a few hours of our time. James and Jason were the first to show up at the jailhouse at 7.15 a.m. They will ask Jason why we're here, and I'll tell them an old friend from town heard about what happened and radioed me about it. I'm sure half the town has heard something by now. Then what? questioned Jason. Then we hear what Judge Lowry's, and I guess now Kate's plans are, and see if we can get some info on where they were. Nobody can know, though, if we go check out the lake after. We have a ranch day, and that's all they need to know. Okay, I get it, Jason replied. But do you think it's some sort of love triangle, like on those Dateline shows we used to watch? I'm pretty sure it's even more complicated this time, replied James. And that's why I want us to be on the front end of this. Judge Lowry showed first, not hesitating to come right up and talk to James. Hey there, buddy, he said, as if nothing had ever happened. I had one hell of a ride home after leaving your house last week. I heard about that. James replied. You gave those old boys quite a chase, I hear. That I did, 
he replied. Cost me a few nights in the clink, but it was worth it. Anyway, I'm back from my fishing trip and ready to get back to work. I heard you left town but hadn't heard the fishing part, said James, digging deeper, but still in a casual tone. Caught a couple of beauties down off Long Canyon. Well, I mean all over, really, he backtracked quickly. Must have fished around most of the lake. Anyway, I guess you guys are here for the meeting? I don't know about any meeting. We just heard you were back in town and something happened to Sheriff Johnson, said James. Figured we would come by this morning before ranch work and get the story firsthand. Get just one or two people down the line and the stories can change completely. Makes sense, replied the judge with a sly grin. I'll let Kate tell it to you. I'm sure she will be here soon. It's a darn shame about the sheriff, just tragic, he added, as straight-faced as a happy judge could, walking inside the open jailhouse door. I guess someone was here before us, said Jason, starting to get out of the truck. Not yet, said James. Let's wait until everyone gets here. Ten minutes later, Kate pulled in, driving her ex-fiancé's truck with the re-elect Sheriff Johnson on the side spray-painted over in black. Well, that didn't take long, said Jason, trying hard not to point. A buck says she's not too broken up about the whole thing. I can't take that bet, said James. Can you help me get my chair? Oh, sure, sorry about that. I thought we were waiting for the deputies unless they are already inside. Either way, let's get this done, replied James flatly. Jason was nervous, not the I'm-going-to-throw-up-nervous that he always had when talking to the judge and Sheriff Johnson, but nervous, just the same. This is an easy meeting, whispered James, hoping to calm Jason's nerves. They are the ones having to explain themselves this time, and Judge Lowry already let it slip where he went fishing, so we just have to listen is all. Ready? Yeah, I guess so, replied a nervous Jason. Kate held the front door open for them both. I wasn't expecting you here this morning, Mayor, she said. Isn't today your ranch day? Yes, ma'am, and I wasn't expecting for us to be here either, but news travels fast, and we are sorry for your loss. Are you? she asked. I am. He and I didn't always see eye to eye on everything, but we work together for this town. Its citizens are safer with the police force, and of course the good judge here. Trade on Saturdays has helped a good many get goods they need and purge items they don't. You know what they say? One man's treasure is another person's trash. I think you mean the other way around, she said quickly. Do I, ma'am? James thought it wouldn't be long before Sheriff Johnson's things would be for sale at the trading booths. There have been a lot of deaths lately, Kate continued. I heard about the guys shooting at the balloons. A few of them are in the back, and of course, the ones from the exhibition before that. Now my fiancé and our fearless leader has gone missing, and is presumed dead. Yes, ma'am. There has been a lot of tragedy lately, but this is a new world and some rules have changed. James replied. I'm glad you brought that up, James. I'll tell you what happened, but only once. Then I won't speak of it again. She went on to tell the exact story she told yesterday, knowing full well he had already heard it from someone else. Now the sheriff would want us to move on, she added, and he asked me a while back to step into his position, should anything bad happen. Isn't that right, Judge Lowry? Yes, ma'am. That's correct. Well, if you can't trust a judge... Who can you trust? she asked, holding up her hands. 
I'll be running for the seat of Sheriff of Weston, and I believe I have one opponent. Is that right, Judge? Yes, ma'am. A young man who mostly keeps to himself. I can't recall his name at the moment, but he'll be on the ballot come Election Day. The town needs to have fair choices. So, it's set. Unless, of course, you're running, James? She asked, staring a hole through him and getting a look of nausea from Jason. James paused, thinking it over, and almost voicing he wasn't sure yet. He laughed. No, no, I don't think that's a position I'll be putting my hat in the ring for. Well, all right. Then I'll be expecting your vote unless one of the deputies is thinking of trying to overturn the apple cart. No, ma'am, came the response from all present. Then that settles it. The town election will be held this Saturday from noon to three, said Judge Lowry. My office will handle the particulars as usual and post the official count by Saturday's trade closing bell. Good day, gentlemen, ma'am, he said, walking out the door. James and Jason headed out next, with nothing more to say at this point. What next? asked Jason. It looks like we're back where we started, and I thought we were going to have someone else help with that dog lady's problem like the deputies. Already done, said James. I just paid the coroner a couple of silvers and sent him over. He and his guys got it done, and that's about the end of it. She's a good woman and has no business in one of these jail cells. She's holding a dog for Mel. I'm sure he'll be happy about that. So, where now? asked Jason. Long Canyon, Lake Trinidad, replied James, without a second thought. The twenty-mile trip took only forty minutes, with nothing out of the ordinary. I will say this, said James. These roads are safer now, for sure, and it's probably due to the sheriff and Judge Lowry. Let's go around each way, he added, a few miles in both directions. What are you looking for? asked Jason. I'm not sure, replied James, but something tells me I'll know it when I see it. I prayed on it last night and woke up with that thought written right across my forehead. I'll know it when I see it. Okay, said Jason, scouring the lake, looking for something afloat resembling a tube or anything else. Not a boat. James scanned the shoreline, clearing his mind and coming back to center when he saw it. There, he said, pointing. Stop here, Jason. What do you see? Jason asked. Her, said James, pointing at the little girl sitting with two other children, watching their father's fish. Getting James's chair out of the back, they slowly made their way towards the group. Nice and slow, Jason. I don't want to get shot today. James waved his arms high, calling out, Hello, to the men nearly waist-deep in the water. Both men turned, surprised, quickly heading to shore. Let's not get too close to the kids, James whispered, staying ten yards back. Hello, he said again. Can we talk to you? What for? One man called back, hurrying towards the children. Your kids, they look hungry. How's the fishing? It's not good. We can't catch a thing. Is that so? said James. Yep, there was a guy up here yesterday, right in this very spot, who caught two beautiful fish and just threw them back, right in front of us. Really? What a jerk, James whispered to Jason. Sound like someone you know? Loves to fish and doesn't like people? I'm sorry to hear that, called out James. What did he catch them on? A fly looked like, the other man responded. I wish I had one of those. Have you been here long? asked James. 
Yeah, a few weeks, I suppose. Have you seen anything off the past couple of days? Continued James, having a gut feeling they had and hoping for the truth. Tell him, Daddy, about the two men fighting, called out a little girl. Quiet, honey. Let me do the talking. Maybe I have, he replied to James. Tell you what, said James. I think you may know something about what I'm looking into. My friend Jason here is going to use one of our best flies and catch a fish for you in five minutes or less from the first cast. Then you tell me your story. If it's what I'm looking for, I'll give you my fly rod and three flies, just like the one he's using. If you can't help me, at least you have one fish to eat. Deal? This isn't a trick, is it? I mean, you really can't walk, right? If I could, I'd be the one in that lake catching your fish. So, what's it going to be? asked James. Deal. It's a deal, both men agreed, now back safely on the lake's bank next to their children. Jason walked back to the truck and retrieved the rod and tackle box. Now, where did you say he caught those fish? he asked. Right out there, thigh deep, sir, came the reply. Jason cast six times in just over four minutes, bringing up a healthy two-pound trout, getting squeals out of the girls. Thank you, sir, said one man. You have no idea what this means for our kids. Yes, I think I do, said Jason, feeling flushed but in a good way. What did you see yesterday, sir? asked James, getting right to it. Well, the man I told you about fishing left, walking right up that road. Not long later, another man came driving up with one of those big silver trailers behind his truck. Like an Airstream trailer? asked James. Yes, I think that's what they call those fancy ones. Anyhow, the fishing guy came back and hid under the trailer. All at once, he started shooting at the other guy's legs. By the time we saw what was happening, the trailer guy was a goner. Happened right over there about 30 yards down the shore. What did he look like? asked James. The guy who got shot. Well, he wore a black hat and matching boots. Got them right here, said his little girl before he could shush her. Now, I don't want you thinking we just robbed someone. They left him for dead, and if we didn't take them, somebody else would have. That's the truth. I'm not judging you, replied James, recognizing both the hat and boots. Where's the body? Across the road, he pointed. The woman said just to leave him lying in the road and drove off with the other guy. I owe you two more flies, said James, nodding for Jason to hand the man his pole. I want to take a look at the body, and I'll be right back with your flies. Sure thing. Reaching the ditch across the road, the body wasn't hard to find, face down in the soft dirt. Sorry about this, Jason, but I need to see where he was show. No, I guess I don't, James added, staring at the back of Sheriff Johnson's head. Jason turned him, and both identified the man as the former Sheriff of Weston. They retrieved the flies and already smelled the fresh fish cooking over the fire. We're even now, said James to the two fathers cooking the fish. Thank you for the information. I thought you said the man was firing from underneath the trailer. Yes, that's right. The wound is to the back of the head. How do you think that happened? It was her, the little girl screamed. I saw her. She shot him, she added, bursting into tears. Are you sure? asked James, now wondering why he even asked. Of course you are, he added, without waiting for her answer. I have another deal if you'll hear it, said James. We'll hear it, 
replied both men. I'm not as mobile as I was only a month ago, but I need him buried proper, not out here like some rabbit got run over by a truck. Can't you just bring him back with you? asked one of the men. We can, replied James, but I need your help getting him into the back of my truck. In return, I'll give you my bob. Your what? My bug-out bag. I carry it everywhere I go. It has a tent, two sleeping bags, a water filter, a fire starter, a saw and axe combo, fishing tackle, and you already have a pole now. There's a medical kit, MREs, canned food, a flashlight, and a bunch more stuff. That's a lot to trade for a few minutes' work, said one man. And I'm not even done, said James. Get him loaded and promise not to speak of this again, and Jason here will teach one of you how to use these flies. We'll stay until you catch a fish. Why? Why all this? You don't even know us. Somebody helped me when I needed it the most, when I wondered if I could go on another day, replied James. Me too, said Jason, nodding to James. My friend Jason here needs to pay it forward. You mean like that movie, from the 90s, I think? Yes, exactly like that. And then it will be your turn to do the same. Maybe not next week or even next year, but sometime it will need to be done. Yes, they both said. Yes. Jason and one man completed the unpleasant task, and James had a casual conversation with the other and his children. The fish smelled like heaven, but James wouldn't take a bite, even when asked repeatedly. You have a child or two. I can see it in your eyes. Am I right? Asked the man. Billy is my son, and he's five. Jason over there has three girls. Three, you say? Oh, boy, he's in trouble when... When what, Daddy? His youngest asked. When they get older and think they know everything. Where are their moms? James whispered. Both, the man said, choking up. Both on a girl's trip to Napa when it happened. They went every year for the past ten. We left notes, but after two weeks we had to leave our homes. Do you think they will ever be back? I hope so, said James. I surely do. Minutes later, Jason was teaching fishing 101 with the right bait. The man caught one straight away, hollering like he had won the Powerball jackpot. James pulled Jason aside when they came back to shore. Are you planning to use your trailer again? Not unless you kick us out. That won't happen. These folks need a home and not in town. If Judge Lowry or Kate see them again or decide they don't want any loose ends after all, it's over for them. They shouldn't be out here, like cattle waiting for slaughter. Agreed, replied Jason, and I know Lauren would agree too. As we close today's captivating episode on Book TV, don't forget to check out Novel Nutrition. Tailored for book lovers, our supplements are designed to complement your reading lifestyle. Use code BOOKTV for a 20% discount on your first order at NovelNutrition.co. Enhance your reading experience with Novel Nutrition, and don't forget that every purchase helps support an author.